Now let me transition. Because I, I want to tell you about something that happened to me when I was in junior high school. And that's what we used to call it before it got sophisticated. Now we call it middle school. Back in junior high school, um, I, used, I used to walk to school when the weather was good. And, and it was all the way across town. No, it wasn't uphill both ways in the snow. But it was all the way across town. And I'd meet my friend Todd, who, whose parents were a little bit well off, a little more well off than mine. And, and Todd had a 10-speed bike, which was a big deal back then. And so Todd and I would meet, and we'd go across school. Now, I had to walk because I didn't have a bike. The bike I had was way too small, and I wasn't going to ride that because I'd kind of outgrown it. And so I asked my dad for a bike. And my dad got me a bike. And I hated it. You see, my dad didn't go out to the local hardware store and buy me a 10-speed with the curly handlebars, the racing seat. He didn't even get me a 5-speed. A 5-speed, you know, is what you got. If you couldn't get up to the 10-speed, still had the straight handlebars, but at least you could change gears on it and the tires were a little, little narrower. No, he didn't give me any of those. Um, my dad found an old bike, and he... He got the frame, and he sanded it down, and he painted it jet black. He got a new chain on it. He oiled everything up, put brand-new tires on it. These weren't the little narrow racing tires, though. These were those fat beachcomber kind of tires. These even had white walls. And the seat was not the little racing seat. It was kind of the wide, you know, it's a little bit more for a touring bike kind of thing. And, and he presented it to me. And, and I, I drove it to school once. When I got there, uh, my friends, I guess we could call them friends, uh, took one look at it as they sat on their 10 speeds and 5 speeds and maybe even 3 speeds, and they laughed at it. I, I really, I can't tell you the nickname they gave my bike. It was that bad. And so I parked it. I was ashamed of that bike. And when you're ashamed of something or someone, we have, all have the same reaction. We try to hide it. We, are, we want to distance ourselves from it. Just being in proximity to us makes us ashamed. And so that came to mind as I was studying the Scripture this week and what Paul says, because if I were to ask you, are you ashamed of the gospel, virtually unanimously you'd raise your hand and go, no. No, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But I'm not sure we really understand what that means. And so I hope that as we look at the scripture together that we'll come to a better understanding of what it means not to be ashamed of the gospel and that it really might change how we live. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to, to open them up with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at just a couple of verses here. There's a lot more we could plunge into, but we're only, only going to look at verses 16 and 17 in Romans chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I have a confession to make. You probably haven't noticed but I'm getting older. I, shock and all, I know. Um, and so I, I picked up my scriptures just to kind of look at it during the music and, and, and read it, and, and I understood I couldn't see this. So 
you'll forgive me. I, I will open it up if it makes you feel better, but I'll be actually reading it from the screen. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Listen to what God led him to write for us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. When Paul writes that he is not ashamed of the gospel, Paul is not writing from some uh, pie-in-the-sky kind of attitude. Paul has a very realistic attitude about what it means to take a stand for the gospel. And for Paul, as for many in the world, it was a rather costly stand. Listen to what he writes to the church in Corinth about his situation. He says, this is, what, this is what, what he withstood for the sake of the gospel. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. I don't know about your math, but five times 40 would be 200. And then you minus five out of that would be 195 lashes at different times by the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies, three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. That's what Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, this is a context in which we need to hear it. Paul is not saying, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and therefore I will wear a Christian t-shirt. I am not ashamed of the gospel, therefore I will put a Jesus bumper sticker on my chariot. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul is saying, I am willing to be bold for the gospel no matter the cost. And for him, the cost was high. And so now when when we read these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and we ask ourselves, am I ashamed of the gospel? Let us put it in the right context. It does not simply mean we'll put a bumper sticker on. It does not simply mean we will wear a t-shirt. It does not simply mean that we will whisper a prayer over our meal at Wendy's. If I'm not ashamed of the gospel, then I need to be bold for the gospel. You see, the gospel has two effects. First is it's God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. It's God's power for salvation for everyone. That's the first effect of the gospel. It will save the lost soul. But the second effect of the gospel is that it is an object of scorn, ridicule, and even embarrassment to those who reject it. 
scorn, ridicule, embarrassment. Paul writes to the church in Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. Completely different view of what the cross is, of what the gospel is, of who Jesus is. To us who are being saved, it is God's power to save us. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved and made right with God. But to those who do not accept this, who do not believe this, this is absolutely foolishness. Of course, if, if there is a God and I need to be made right with him, it's not up to Jesus. It's up to me. I've got to do this. I've got to be good enough. I've got to be righteous enough. I've got to be holy enough on my own in order to get there. That's the thinking of the world if they accept that there is a God in a heaven. It's up to me. But according to Paul and according to what we have already understood is the gospel, the gospel is not about me being good enough. The gospel is about me receiving Jesus Christ, the one who died and was buried and rose again. And living in that gospel, living in that truth. Now, we've talked about our persecuted brothers and sisters. But you need to understand that the ball has started rolling here, too. And it's starting to pick up momentum. There will be people if it hasn't already occurred in your life, who will seek to shame you in silence. I'm convinced that the assault against Christianity is underway in our nation. If, if, you, if you want to stand up and declare that Jesus is the only way, and, that, and that's, that's, what, that's what the gospel teaches, Jesus is the only way to the Father. If you want to stand up and declare that, then you will be called narrow-minded, closed-minded, or perhaps just stupid and ignorant. If you want to stand up and say that God has a way that he wants us to live, that is separate from the world, that he's called us to live a holy life, even though we can't do it perfectly, he's called us to be set apart for a purpose. He's called us to do different things with our lives, different things with our money, different things with our priorities than the rest of the world. There is a right and there is a wrong you stand up and to declare that there is a right and, and there is a wrong and that God sets the standard, then you will be called hateful, bigoted, stupid, ignorant. The name calling has already begun. The ball is already rolling. And at some point, the, the, the mass will, will change, the, the, the weight will kick in, and this snowball will pick up pace so that you will be silenced, whatever the cost. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to be a fear monger here. You just need to understand this is the direction that we are going to stand for an exclusive faith in Jesus Christ, to stand for a lifestyle that is dictated by God and not by the world is simply not acceptable. Every other faith and every other lifestyle and value choices are to be tolerated, celebrated, or even embraced. 
the only values that cannot be tolerated and the only faith that will not be tolerated is going to be the Christian faith. We are under assault. Now, let me warn you right here. I don't want you to get sidetracked. There's a smoke screen that appears every year about this time. And that smoke screen has to do with Christmas. Keep Christ in Christmas. Now, here's the deal. It always gets wrapped up with Christmas trees and Santa and Rudolph. And what I want to warn you is, don't take the bait. Do not take the bait. I have yet to see a, a Christmas tree in a public square lead anyone to Jesus Christ. I have yet to see a classroom singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Santa Claus is coming to town, save one soul. When we want to keep Christ in Christmas, it means it's about Jesus. Let them make all the fuss they want to make about Christmas trees and Rudolph. You keep the focus where it belongs. How do you do that? It starts in your home. If Christ is not center in your home, then whatever words you're declaring out there on the street are hollow, empty. I mean, I hear people who get really, really up in arms about, oh, you know, the world just went to hell in a handbasket when they took prayer out of school. They haven't taken prayer out of school. All they did is said you can't do it publicly. Your children... And your grandchildren should be taught to pray in school. And nobody and no one can stop that. But some of the loudest voices about taking prayer to school, I I wonder if there's prayer in their home. You see, we we want to make some big public spectacle. I'm telling you, if you want to change the momentum, if you want to slow the way, the weight of that ball rolling downhill, then it's not going to happen by public fiat mandate or law. It's going to happen when people who love Jesus, love him enough to pray in their own homes, to worship in their own homes, to celebrate in their own homes, to live out a distinctly Christian lifestyle in their own homes because it begins to spill over. And what happens is what we heard last week in one of our testimonies, that because of what's happening in the home, there's a child in a school who's pulling people together and encouraging them and praying for people right in the school. Let me tell you what, that will do far more than any public uh, emasculated neutered prayer will do in front of a classroom. If your children are praying for other children in school, if your children are witnessing to other children in school, if your children are being different, living a distinctly Christian lifestyle in school, I'm telling you, that'll make the difference. I think I get off track. Paul's, listen, Paul would say the same thing now that he said back in the first century, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul didn't know anything about Santa. He didn't know anything about Christmas trees. And I don't think he sang Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But he knew about Jesus. And he knew about the gospel. And he said, that's what I'm not ashamed of. And that's what I'll be bold for. Jesus said, listen, this is pretty heady stuff. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, 
in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Listen, there's coming a time. There's coming a time when Jesus is coming back to look for those who are unashamed of him and the gospel. Are we willing to be a fellowship of the unashamed? An army of the unashamed. People who will hold high the name of Jesus in our homes and in our communities and not just in worship services. People who are willing to live lives that are set apart and different from the rest of the world. Even when it means we have to say no. No thank you to invitations to come and plunge in with everybody else. People who are willing to devote themselves to prayer and the word, even when it's not forced. To give that time from television, from whatever else it might be that occupies that, to say, you know what, I'm going to turn that off and I'm just going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to read God's word. No, I'm not going to understand it all. And, and, and some of it's going to be over my head. But, but I understand that God has something to say. And I want to live a life that's, that's different from the rest of the world. That makes a difference in this world. Are we willing to lay it all on the line for the sake of the gospel? That's what Paul meant when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What he was saying is, I will be bold for the gospel no matter what the cost. Why should we not be ashamed of the gospel? Paul tells us because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. It's God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. Have you seen the hope sign out front? If you haven't, there's a picture of it. Notice it next time. Open your eyes. What what is that hope sign saying? Is that hope sign simply saying, you know what, I I hope your life would just get a little bit better. Is it saying, you know, I I hope your bills get paid this month. Is it saying, you know, I hope your grandma pulls through. That is not why that sign is planted out front. That sign is planted out front because it is a declaration that there is a gospel and that there is hope in that gospel. And apart from that gospel, there is no hope. Did you hear that? There's hope in the gospel. Apart from the gospel, there is no hope. That is what that sign declares. That is the message of that sign, the message of our church to the world, in the gospel, there's hope. Apart from the gospel, there's no hope. The, God's, the, the gospel is God's power to save. And that's a good thing because if it were up to you and me to save ourselves, we are sunk. We, we can't do it. It's not within our power and our ability. But we have placed this undying hope in one who's defeated death, the grave, sin and hell who paid a debt that we could not pay a price that was far too high for us Jesus put it this way I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me the gospel is God's power to save who 
everyone who believes. The blood of Jesus was sufficient payment for every sin ever committed by every man, woman, or child who has ever lived for all time. Did you get that? You must not have gotten that. Are you? Is, is, this, is this not good news? The blood of Jesus shed on the cross was sufficient, more than sufficient payment for every sin ever committed by every man, woman, or child who's ever lived for all time. That's a lot of sin. Let, let's, let's, let's get a, a bucket and let's put your sin in that bucket. Okay, let's get a bathtub. Not big enough? All right, dump truck. Okay, we pulled a dump truck up. We've loaded all the weight of your sin in that dump truck. Now just multiply it times the number of people on earth right now. How much sin is that? How many dump truck loads is that? Now think about for all time. That is a lot of sin. The blood Jesus shed on the cross was more than sufficient to cover all of our sin ever been committed for all time. That's, that's a lot of forgiveness right there. But, but don't get me wrong because there is no universal salvation. That is not what is being said. We're not saying that the gates of heaven have been ripped off their hinges and now everybody is presented with a get out of hell free card. We all get to, to go in except, you know, we'll leave Hitler and Stalin hanging outside the gate. But the rest of us, we, you know, we get to go in because Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, sufficient payment for sin, we're all covered, we're all in. No, that is not what Paul said. Paul said the gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who what? Believes. That makes a difference. Look at verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. And that word means is being continually revealed. From faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is being revealed. Now, What's he tossing in here? What's this all about? The righteousness of God is God's perfect, holy character. And that term righteousness means straightness. Okay. Help me out here. What does this mean? Think about it this way. If a person has chosen the wrong path... Um, we would say that, that and they, they lie. We, we would call that person crooked, right? That, that's a term we use. They're, they're, that's a crooked person. You can't trust them. They're crooked. Uh, a person who steals, we would call them a, a crook. It's short for crooked. Okay. Now let's say this crooked crook changed his or her ways. We would say of this person that they have gone straight. The moral connotation here. What we're saying is that this person's life is not straight. It's not in line with the righteousness of God. It's, it's out of kilter. It's crooked. But this person's changed their ways. They've gone straight. They've brought their life back into line with this standard of morality. And that's the point here. God is perfectly straight. There's no error, no sin, no sin, no shadow of turning, as the hymn says, with God at all. He's completely, totally, morally straight 
perfect, holy, and in all his character. He is the standard by which we measure righteousness. And by that standard, you and I don't measure up. Oh, sure, you, you might, if you're sitting there and you're comparing yourself to your husband sitting right next to you, you might go, well, I'm not so bad. Uh, you know, compared, compared to him, I'm all right. He's not the standard. Thank you. He's not the standard. I'm not the standard. The standard is God. And compared to that standard, we do not measure up. But God loved us. And so he sent his son to die for us. A perfect sacrifice for us. He was the only one who could pay the price. He was the only one who could offer the sacrifice. And he did. That is God's righteousness. In the, in the gospel, God's righteous character, it says, is being unveiled, revealed for us from faith to faith. What does that mean? It means in the gospel, God is revealing his righteous character. We're sinners. We deserve death and hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. God's righteousness, in fact, demands that we are shut out of heaven and that we are shut out of his presence forever and ever and ever and ever. We who are sinful cannot stand before God who is righteousness We're in trouble. And the only way that we could be cleansed of our sin and clothed in righteousness is for this perfect sacrifice to be offered. Jesus did that. And that's why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he made the one who did not know sin. To know something biblically is to be intimately acquainted with it. Okay, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin or to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now you go, uh, help me understand that. Get this. You've got to get this. This is key to understanding the cross and why Paul wasn't ashamed of the cross, why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Okay. We have a few names up here on this cross people you've been praying for, people who don't know Jesus, okay? All right, let, let's, just, let's just use these names, and we're just going to pick a name at random here. Here's somebody's name, Brian, okay? I, it may be you, I don't know, but okay, here's Brian. All right, we know this about Brian. There's a lot we don't know about him, but we know that Brian is a sinner because the Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, okay? That's all of us. Okay, so here's Brian. Brian's a sinner, okay? All right, Brian deserved this death. This is what Brian deserved. And after this death, he deserved to be separated from God forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. But Jesus came and he died on this cross. He took Brian's place. In other words, what Jesus did is exactly what we read here in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin and knew no sin, to become sin for Brian. So that Brian might be cleansed of his sin and be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
so that Brian might have something that Brian couldn't get on his own. He couldn't achieve on his own. He, he couldn't clean himself up. There's not enough soap in the world to ever wash away our sin. And so God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent his son to die for us, to pay the price, to take our sin so that we might be clothed in Christ's righteousness and to be able to stand before a holy God. We do not do this by working for it. We do not do this by being more religious than other people. We don't do it by doing more good dudes and bad. We can only gain a righteous standing before God by faith in Jesus. Salvation, gospel, is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. It is, as Paul said, from faith to faith. Okay, help me, help me with that. From faith to faith. What's Paul saying? It's all of faith. From first to last, it's all of faith. The faith with which you had to believe. Guess what? You know where it came from? God gave it to you. You didn't even have the faith to believe. God gave it to you. Our salvation begins with the faith that God has put in us to trust in Jesus Christ. We live in that same faith. And when this life comes to a close, we'll be holding on to that same faith. From faith to faith, it's all of faith. The righteous will live by faith but the unrighteous will die without it. See, if you read this and and you don't understand that this is not earned righteousness, but imputed or received righteousness, then you miss the entire boat. This is not what we do for ourselves. We are saved by grace through faith, and that is not something we do ourselves, but is instead the gift of God. This is a gospel. You know, I wish I wish I could go back to junior high school. I wish I could go out to the barn and pull out that bicycle that my dad bought, fixed, and proudly gave to me. I wish I could climb on that bicycle and ride down the street and meet Todd on his brand spanking new 10-speed and ride together with him to school. I wish I could pull up on that junior high school campus as my supposed friends pointed and laughed and joked. Do you know what would be different today? Today, my shoulders would be held back, my head held high, and there would be an irremovable smile on my face. Why? Because if I knew then what I know now, I had a father who loved me enough to give me the very best 
he had to give. And that bicycle, about which I was ashamed, was God's, was my dad's gift to me. The best he had to give. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's, the heavenly father's gift to us. It is the best he has to give. Why are we ashamed? Why are we not bold for the gospel? Why as children of God, do we not walk with our shoulders thrown back and our head held, by, held high and a smile on our face that cannot be removed and a joy in our hearts and a spring in our step because God the Father who is righteous, God the Father who loves us, God the Father who paid the greatest price on earth by giving us his own son, God gave us the best he had. So we can stand and declare like Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is God's power to save me. It is God's power to keep me. And it's the only hope this world has.